One of the most difficult first steps in treating alcoholism is getting the patient to admit that they have a problem. Additionally, their insight and rational thinking is often altered due to the prolonged alcohol abuse. Today, we will review helpful ways for us to encourage alcoholics to seek treatment. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Sujit Varma, Medical Director of Range Mental Health Center in Hibbing, Minnesota. Dr. Varma is a psychiatrist and recognized expert in addiction medicine. Welcome. Thank you, Leslie. It's uh, great to be here. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us, Dr. Varma. Often patients don't feel that they have a drinking problem, and, and we think they do. How do you show them that they may have a problem? Well, let me answer this question by making a quote by Ogden Nash. He said, candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker. Mm. So it's not easy. What I do is I first try and reiterate to my client that they have a biological problem. I look at their charts and I show them things like elevated LFTs, liver function tests, and abnormal labs. And I tell them, you've been admitted so many times, and it seems that every time you're admitted, you come in with a blood alcohol level of 0.3 or 0.2. And it seems that alcohol is the major reason why you're here, not necessarily something else like bipolar. I also explain to them that their prognosis down the road is going to be worse if they keep continuing to drink. And uh, that's how I try and get the message across. And I don't have a pill for motivation, but hopefully with that, I'm able to at least convince some of my patients to look towards pharmacotherapy to help them with that problem and even go in for counseling and 12-step programs. Now, a common answer that I would hear from a patient in that scenario is, well, I don't have a problem. I can stop drinking at any time. That's something that I hear all the time. I, I just uh, a few days ago, I met one of my clients and I asked him, uh, don't you realize that you have alcohol dependence? And he said, no, I don't have a problem. I said, what do you mean you don't have a problem? You drink a case of beer a day. And he said, no, I only drink one can of beer a day. What happens after that is this other person takes over my personality and he <laughs> drinks the rest of the beer. So it's almost like they have a dissociation with what they consider a problem. And I know this sounds funny, but they don't think that what they are doing is a problem. They can control their drinking. In fact, I've had patients that want to do what's called controlled drinking. They say that, oh, well, now I'm not going to drink a case of beer. I'll just drink one or two beers every day. And once you become alcohol dependent, there's no way that you can actually stop and be controlled drinking because those opioid receptors, those dopamine uh, releases in your brain are always going to be there. You have such a high uh, reward or reinforcement for alcoholism that the only way to stop drinking is to actually stop, period. Now, isn't it true, though, too, that so many times people that drink hang out with other people that drink? So in their circle, in their social circle, that, that everybody's drinking, you know, maybe about the same. And so another answer you'll hear from the patient is, well, everybody I know drinks the same amount. Yes, that's uh, pretty common with the population I deal with. Uh, it's peer pressure. You hang around with the same crowd. You do the same thing. There's a husband who drinks, the spouse drinks, or they may be enabling the person because they prefer to have the spouse drunk rather than have him irritable if he doesn't get his alcohol. Mm. And I've heard of some really scary stories where families where the parents drink have actually put alcohol in the baby's milk bottle just to sedate the baby at night so that they don't have to deal with a crying baby. Mm. Mm. So we're talking about like uh, alcohol that's in the system throughout the time, and it's, that's going to be very hard. We have to get the family involved. We have to, we have Al-Anon, we have Al-Teen. So change of environment, yes, uh, would be 
something that would be beneficial and none of it is easy. Now, many people, uh, patients and physicians alike, don't really understand the brain circuitry and how alcohol affects that. Is it worth the time reviewing some of that scientific information with your patients? Yes, we should explain why we are treating someone with certain medications and what the long-term goal of our treatment is. Now, there's something called medical literacy. When doctors talk, they use, uh, you know, big words, they use abbreviations. But when we talk to our patient, we should talk at the level that they understand. So when I talk about brain circuitry, I probably am not going to use the word circuitry. I just say that in your brain, there is a center that is causing you to just want to drink more and more alcohol. And the only way to stop that is by giving you a certain medication that can block that craving center. And in addition to that, there's another part of your brain that is involved in your decisions regarding alcohol that are triggered by environmental cues. And the only way to stop that is by you attending 12-step programs, by attending counseling, attending cue exposure therapy. And uh, most patients can uh, repeat that back to me, and then I understand that they at least know what I'm talking about. Right. And I'm not just, it's not just going over their head. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, so that would be a good way to explain it, yes. How about using kind of fear tactics? Do you find that's helpful in motivating people to get treatment? Well, you know, I think that would be a little bit unethical. Uh, I mean, I don't want them to get scared of me. I don't want to lose an ally here. I want to develop a therapeutic relationship. The patient and the physician should work together in this uh, venture. And the patient is actually afraid that he's going to be neglected. They feel that the minute that the doctor thinks I've got alcoholism, they're going to blame me for it. It's a willpower issue. They're going to say that I'll give you something right now, but you know, if you keep failing it, I'm losing interest in treating you. And a lot of physicians show that. Every time they see a person who walks in for the 10th or 15th time for detox, they don't care. They just want to treat them for the withdrawal, and then they want them out their clinic. So, no, I don't want to scare my patients. I want them to be my allies. I tell them that uh, we, there is a cure for this. We are here to help you with this, and we can together we can fight this problem. So I'm not in favor of scaring my patients. I will obviously try and show things that might be considered as fear. Like I will show abnormal lab values to my patient and explain that your liver is getting worse or your complete blood count shows these findings, or your electrolytes are are abnormal, and what does that mean? But beyond that, no, I want the patient to be compliant with what I'm saying and actually like therapy that I'm offering. Now, in what circumstances can a physician override a patient's choice not to seek treatment and and force the patient to to get some help? Okay, this is an interesting question. It's more of a legal issue. And I can probably speak mainly for what happens in the state of Minnesota. Now, we have a patient that comes in and say he's in full-blown hepatic encephalopathy because of alcoholism, has got abnormal labs, and uh, maybe if he drinks any further, he may actually drink himself to death over the next few weeks or months. Then we have criteria to actually use in a court of law to almost force medicate the person. So in this case, we use those lab values, which are so abnormal, and then the patient obviously would have poor insight into his condition. We try and explain that you have a problem with alcoholism, but the patient doesn't want to stop drinking, insists that he's going to keep drinking the minute he leaves the hospital. We try and get the help of any family members if there's anyone around, or we make him a ward of the state. And then we do something called a Rule 25 here in the state of Minnesota, where we actually commit the patient to an inpatient locked unit for at least a period of three months, where he has no access uh, to alcohol and where he gets all the appropriate treatments, which include pharmacotherapy and counseling and other medications like vitamin D12, folic acid, medication for withdrawal to 
get him over the medical as well as the psychiatric and uh, also the alcohol-related problems. Now, Dr. Farmer, what do you do when cost becomes an issue and the patient can't afford private treatment or some of these expensive medications? Well, I try to help my patients who can't afford medication by trying to give them samples, and I'm a big fan of getting samples, and I give them samples. I try to give them medication that they can afford. Uh, We try to do prior authorizations on medications that are too expensive. But looking at the cost factor, it's more expensive for this person to be out there in society as an alcoholic as opposed to not being treated even if the medicine is expensive. Alcoholism costs our society about $186 billion a year. So the more alcoholics we treat, the better down the road we are going to have with regard to society and also the overall prognosis of the patient. So I am very assertive with getting prior authorizations, referring patients to other alternative things like counseling, MICD, which stands for mental illness, chemical dependency groups, uh, Q uh, sensitization, covert sensitization. So not everything has to be expensive. There isn't like uh, $10,000 treatment programs for every patient. They don't all have to go to VIP lounge and get treatment. They can just get treatment at at, uh, regular uh, detox clinics and get medication that is affordable. What point do you get the family involved, and how do you do that? Well, we try to get the family involved as soon as possible. That is, if there is a family and that they are concerned. The reason why we need this is that there is a possibility that alcoholism is being enabled by the family. I'm not saying that the family is also alcoholic, but sometimes the family members prefer that the patient is drunk rather than irritable. And it's pretty sad. Uh, I've had this case where uh, a 65-year-old lady was a blood alcohol of 0.45. That's one of the highest I've ever seen. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And uh, she probably drinks like a case or two of beer a day or maybe a liter of vodka. And the reason why she can go out and get it is because her husband actually drives to the store, buys it and gives it to her. And he tells me that if I don't give her the alcohol, she's terrible. She beats him up. She's, uh, you know, just uh, terrible. And at least when she's drunk, he can at least sit and watch TV and do what else he wants to do. So we need to get the family involved because the family itself is enabling them. The family has bad coping mechanisms. So the earlier we deal with that, the better. We need to educate the family and make them an ally for the patient. We don't want the family to ostracize the patient as to, oh, yeah, he's got a problem. He needs to deal with it, and we need to get along with the rest of our lives. No, the illness actually subsumes the patient and the family. So uh, the sooner you get the family involved, the better if you can. Or even uh, friends, if there are friends that care. Mm-hmm. What happens if the patient refuses? If the patient refuses, then we have to look into factors like what does the refusal uh, mean? Is the patient going to get more problems physiologically? Is his liver function test going to get worse? Is he actually going to drink after he leaves? Uh, is he refusing just help from the family? Uh, based on these things, we can actually uh, go ahead and force uh, the patient to get some kind of treatment if we have enough criteria to hold the patient uh, in the hospital and refer him to the appropriate treatment center. Okay, so that's when you go for the involuntary legal hold. Yes, involuntary legal hold. Uh-huh. Any other tips for physicians on how to motivate patients to get help when they're not very happy about it? Well, I think physicians should, uh, first of all, uh, be aware that we have a lot of resources, both for them and for patients, and I'm just going to mention a few. The NIAAA, which stands for the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, the uh, AFAM, which is the American Society of Addiction Medicine, you can also refer them to Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book. Uh, these are things that the physician can learn themselves and also explain to the patient. And uh, patients sh- should be referred for counseling, um, all the other kinds of uh, things that come with counseling. 
physicians should be aware of the fact that we do have medication that can be given to a patient that does not cause the antibuse reaction. We've come a long way since antibuse. We do have medication that's safe, that's given to a patient, and the patient can still drink on that, though I don't actually recommend that since they're trying to stop that, but won't have those reactions. So we are now in a very safe uh, era where we can treat alcoholism the right way. We've come a long way from the 1900s when we just, uh, you know, threw people in wet houses and had them have withdrawals and just stopped drinking by punishing them. So these are some of the things I, I'm telling to my physicians out there. We do have resources. It's a biological disease. There is a cure, and it's up to you and the, and the patient to form an alliance and uh, get rid of this problem. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Sujit Varma. We have been discussing how to get patients into alcoholism treatment. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.